through verse 40. Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 30. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. When you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. For I ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and I ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether any great thing like this has happened, or anything like it has been heard. Did anyone, any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for Himself a nation from amidst another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is none other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice, and he might instru- that He might instruct you. On earth He showed you His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them, and He brought you out of Egypt with His presence, with His mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. Therefore, know this day, and consider it in your heart, that the Lord Himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. You shall therefore keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do rejoice and give thanks to You for the gift that You've given to us in Your word. And we pray that as we come to this passage, as we consider consider this particular topic this evening, Lord, we pray that You would help us to see the truth, that we would be in awe of Your glorious attributes. And that... we would be reminded that you alone are the one true living God. There is no other. And so we pray, Father, that as we do this study, that you would truly bless your word to us and that you would enrich our hearts. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's certainly easy for us to point out differences and similarities between other people right because we can we can see them we can observe with our own eyes and compare and contrast them well the words that we would use to describe those differences and similarities could be called attributes attributes of their outward appearance like for example what they're wearing and uh, the color of their hair or the color of their eyes also attributes that describe the identity uh, the identities of who are of who we are as creatures. And so we're humans, we're men or women. 
and also attributes that describe our personality or how we act. Maybe someone's shy or outgoing, but also things like being kind or friendly or generous. But this, as we can easily then pick out attributes of one another, well, it gets a little more challenging when we talk about God and His attributes. Because as we confess, God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like us. And so because he's a spirit and without a body, well, we can't see him, even though we know that he's there. So how do we know God's attributes? Well, because he's revealed them, uh, and he's revealed himself to us. In the way that we know God, and that he has revealed his attributes, we know through creation, uh, through the mighty works that he has done, uh, even as um, Moses is reminding the people of Israel here in this uh, in Deuteronomy 4. But also we know God and his attributes through his word. And he has revealed himself in his word and through Jesus Christ and the, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look around at God uh, and his revelation of himself, both general and special revelation, we quickly realize that God isn't like us, that he is truly a unique being. Indeed, he has to be truly unique if he is the only one true God. And as we read here in, uh, in Deuteronomy 4, the Moses points out, and this is what he's pointing out, that there's no one like the Lord God, that he alone is God. He has shown himself, revealed himself in ways that all the false gods and idols that the people of other nations have not revealed themselves, because they can't. God alone has the power and the authority to do what he's done for his people. And he has revealed himself and his attributes to them through his word, through his deeds, and especially through his covenant. Well, this evening we're going to look at some of those attributes which especially make God unique. That is, they separate him from his creation and his creatures. And we call these attributes incommunicable attributes. Basically, uh, God doesn't communicate them to us. They belong to him alone. Incommunicable attributes of God are those divine perfections which have no analogies in the creature. They emphasize the absolute distinctness of God. And so the first of these attributes that we want to look at is the attribute of aseity. A little word, what does it mean? Well, it basically refers to God's independence or his self-existence. Basically it's this, God exists in and of himself. Without cause, without beginning or end, God simply is. He doesn't depend on anything for his existence. He's fully and he's completely independent from all that is external to him. Not only is he independent in his being, but he also he is independent in all his virtues and actions and causes all his creatures to depend upon him. So where do we find this attribute revealed in the scriptures? Well, we find it in the very first verse. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The very first words of the scriptures, in the beginning, God. God was there in the beginning, that is, before all creation existed, God was there. 
We also see the God revealing this attribute uh, to Moses in Exodus uh, chapter 3 when the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and calls Moses to say, hey, you need to go and, and deliver my people out of the land of Egypt and lead them out. And Moses said, well, who should I tell them sent me? And then God revealed his name to Moses saying, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God's name is I am, or I am that I am. This is the, the what you call the tetragrammaton, or uh, Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. It's simply the verb to be in the first person singular present tense. And it's repeated twice. I am that I am, or even I exist. I exist. And so we learn from this that God simply is. There's no beginning, no end. He just is. Another passage that shows us this uh, attribute is Job 22, uh, verses 2 and 3, where Job's friend Eliphaz says this, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to Him that you make your way, your ways blameless? Well, this really, this, uh, these verses really show us the independent aspect of God. That God is full and complete in and of Himself. Yes, He's created the universe and everything, everything in it, not because He needed to, not because He was lonely or He was bored, or had some deficiency in his person or character, but only for his own good pleasure. Simply, he wanted to. And the apostle, uh, in Acts 17, we read this, Paul uh, uh, is in Athens, and he's revealing uh, to those on Mars Hill the truth of the unknown God. And he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 28 that in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God doesn't depend on us. We, that is all his creatures, even all creation depends upon him. And then he continues in verse 29 that because we are his offspring, that is because God created us, it's impossible for us then to create God by fashioning idols, images, and art. And of course that was God's slam, or Paul's slam, against the Athenians and all these statutes that they had, the idols that they had around. So God is independent. He's self-existent. He wasn't born or created. He just is. So what does this particular attribute mean for us in our day-to-day lives? How does God's aseity affect us? Well, there's a couple practical implications It reminds us that God is the creator, that he is the first cause. That he was, he, God was, before everything else was. When nothing was, God was. This reminds us that there was no random collision of of random gases that made a big bang somewhere out in the, the emptiness of space that spontaneously 
without wisdom, without guidance, or without direction, created mass and even life. No, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This attribute also reminds us that God doesn't need us. But we always need Him. Because we're needy creatures. In fact, our neediness really gives evidence that something greater exists beyond ourselves. Somewhere out there, there's someone who can fully satisfy our neediness because they're not needy at all. That someone is God. Because God isn't dependent upon anyone, He's most dependable and we can fully rely on Him. For example, because He is self-sufficient, independent, and not needy, well then His grace extended toward us is all sufficient for us. That is, it's able to fill every void and emptiness that we may have or feel. His grace is all sufficient. It's all sufficient for our salvation. And this includes our justification as well as our sanctification and eventually even also our glorification. We need God's grace because at best our own works are insufficient and at worst they are nothing but worthless filthy rags. So God's grace is also all sufficient for our enduring the fallenness of this world. Sin, suffering, and misery. This is the truth Paul declares the Lord revealed to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Only a self-sufficient, perfectly independent God could make such an assurance and provide the all-sufficient grace that we need each and every day. Another implication of this is that we really ought to be humbled then that God is pleased to use us. We may wonder, well, why, why did God create us? Why did He create us? If He doesn't need us, if we can't add anything to Him, why did God create us? Well, again, simply because of His good pleasure. He, he wanted to. He who created everything and needs nothing was pleased to create us after His own image that we might know Him, love Him, and serve Him. The perfectly self-sufficient God is pleased to use us to work out His plan and purpose. Well, this helps really to give us purpose and meaning in life. As humans, our purpose and chief goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as Christians, we have the same purpose, but we also have the purpose of being instruments of God's grace in the lives of those around us, so that they too might come to realize the true purpose for which they were created. And so that's the aseity of the independence of God. Another attribute to consider is the immutability of God. This basically means God doesn't change. He doesn't change in His being, essence, attributes, or His counsels and decrees. He is, and He always has been, and always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, of course, from our perception, sometimes it appears as though God does change. But we don't see all that He has planned from His eternal perspective. And so it's God's accommodating our finite understanding. He, he alters the revelation of Himself without altering Himself uh, in His being. But where do we find this 
immutability of God in the Scriptures. Well, Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Well, that's pretty straightforward. James 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So God stays the same. He doesn't turn and and change so that there's no shadow. He casts no shadow. And Psalm 102, They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them. And they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here the psalmist is saying that God changes us, and He changes everything, but He Himself does not change. And what's interesting here is that uh, the writer of the Hebrews quotes this psalm in Hebrews 1 in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. that He does not change, and we'll look at that shortly as well. In Hebrews 6, we see that God's covenant faithfulness is guaranteed by two things about Him that do not change. One is His own character, and the, fact, and the other is the fact that He does not lie. And then Lamentations 3, that His compassions don't fail because God doesn't change. So what are the implications of this attribute for us? Well, we can trust God. Because his character, his being, and his word do not change. Think about it. What vanity it would be to try to trust in a God who changes or at least could potentially change. Would he be the same tomorrow as he is today? Well, you can't know. Maybe he'll be the same, but maybe he won't. It would be a huge gamble. Especially if you look to depend upon Him for everything. If there's the possibility that He could change, well, ultimately, He can't be trusted. And if you can't fully trust Him, then He's not really a God worth serving. We also see the implication that His covenant faithfulness is grounded in the truth that He doesn't change. And again, this is a special application for for God's people. And God, through Jesus Christ, has entered into a covenant with those whom he calls to be his people. We are his people, and he is our God. Well, if God changes in his character of faithfulness, well, then what's to keep him from reneging on his covenant? This was the point being made back in Hebrews 6. Our salvation rests in a sure and certain covenant that God has made and has intended to keep. If God was as a liar... And he changes, well then we are fools for trusting in him. And think of this as well. Every single promise God has made in his word is true and will be kept if he's an unchangeable, immutable God. Now aside from the covenant promises and securing our salvation, or perhaps more accurately flowing from them, We have a whole host of promises that God has made in His Word. Promises that give us hope and comfort. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you confess your sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus says, I will build my church. 
That all things work out for our good and for God's glory. That we will one day see Him face to face. And the great promise given in, in Romans 8, that nothing, absolutely, positively nothing, can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. And again, we could go on and on with the many promises we find in God's Word. Friends, all these promises are lost. If God is a God who is able to change His character, His being, His Word, or His decree. If God can change, then there's nothing to stop Him from not keeping His promises. And so they become empty and worthless words. Also, if God changes in even the slightest way, our hope and confidence in Him and His promise, our confidence in Him and His promises is lost. Now, this relates closely to what we just mentioned, but here it's our hope and confidence that's completely lost and crushed if God changes. Hope is the anchor of our soul. Hope in a God who doesn't change. Assurance of hope and confidence and faith stem from this unmovable rock of truth. If that rock is able to move, or be moved, well, the solid ground on which we stand becomes sinking sand, and everything built upon it falls apart. If God changes His mind, and doesn't raise us from the dead on the last day, well, then we have hoped and believed in vain and are nothing but fools. And so we should rejoice and give thanks that God does not and indeed cannot change. Another third attribute we want to consider is the, that God is infinite. That is, God is not limited by time and space. Everything that belongs to His being is without measure or quantity. So where do we find this in the scriptures? Well, we want to look at uh, infinite uh, being infinite in a couple of different ways. Uh, we find this throughout the scriptures. And so, for example, uh, eternity. Eternity is, is infinity in relation to time. And so in Psalm 90, we read this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting to everlasting. Everlasting beginning, everlasting ending. There's no, it's infinite. But God is still God. In relation to time, God is infinite. Uh, we also see this in Second Peter 3. <clears throat> Peter is uh, seeking to give comfort to the people of God. says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the, day, with the Lord one day is a, as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So there's no past or future with God. There's only ever an eternal present. And so God is eternal, relating to His being infinite. Well, He's also immense. This is his infinity in relation to space. In other words, God is, is bigger than big. First uh, Kings 8 is when we have a Solomon dedicating uh, the temple and, and giving the prayer of dedication. And he says this, But will God indeed dwell in the earth? Behold, heaven and the earth, uh, uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Solomon knew that the temple could not contain God and His glory because God was infinite. 
Even the heavens of heavens can't contain him. How would this small building contain him? It would be impossible. Uh, Stephen <clears throat> quotes Isaiah 66 in his sermon in Acts 7 saying, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? And so heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. God is a big God. And so we get that from the infinite attribute of God's attribute of, of being infinite. We also gather from this attribute uh, the fact that God is perfect in all his other attributes. And so when we go through a list of God's attributes, we often um, say that God is most. He's most holy. He's most good. He's most kind. He's most gracious. And that perfection in his attributes is tied to his being infinite because it magnifies his attributes. In Job 11, <clears throat> we read this, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In other words, there's no way to measure the attribute of God's almightiness, His power. In Psalm 145, we read this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. God is, is great. It's unsearchable. There's no way to, to measure it, to, to examine it, because it's far beyond what we could ever imagine. Which leads us then to the uh, final aspect of this, the attribute of uh, God being infinite, is that He is incomprehensible. It's because God is so big, because He's so great, so perfect, and is infinite and eternal in all His being, well then we who are mere finite creatures cannot fully comprehend Him. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways, His thoughts are so much far beyond what our finite uh, human capacity can handle. And Paul in Romans 11 also says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. There's no way to search out. There's no way that we can even possibly begin to know all that there is to know about God because He's infinite. What are some practical implications for this attribute of God being infinite? Well, even though God is eternal and timeless, we know that He acts in time for our good and for His glory, and for this we ought to give thanks. Paul says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so for God, when uh, the coming of Christ just happened just in eternity, but because of His great love for us, it happened in a point of time from our perspective. So even though God is infinite, He is also a personal God. 
he's personal relationship uh, with himself. And we think about the uh, the Trinity, the inner Trinitarian conversations at creation, or Jesus uh, in prayer to the Father and the Spirit, um, both blessing and setting apart the Son at baptism. And God is a personal God in relation with his creation, with creatures and even with us. And we see this with his fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden, his communion with Moses, his presence in the temple, in the midst of the people, and of course the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us through Jesus Christ. And we also see it in the continual work of his presence through the spirit that works in us. Well, this attribute also magnifies the the mystery, the glory, and the goodness of the incarnation and the resurrection. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, also bears this characteristic. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son, had that existence as God the Son. But then again, at a point in time, for our good and God's glory, He took on flesh. The eternal God became flesh and dwelt among us to identify with us in our suffering and to secure our salvation. And now the resurrected Christ eternally intercedes for us. He rules and he reigns over all as king for the benefit and blessing of the church. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, even as God is, because he is the Son of God. Well, because God is eternal... It assures us that our hope is certain and and very real. Again, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and His current state of, of body and soul united together in heaven gives us the sure and certain hope of our own bodily resurrection and eternal life in His presence. But also because God is infinite, because He's eternal and incomprehensible, and we are mere finite creatures, even though that is... God's attribute, we can still know him truly, but we can't know him fully. And even our language is is limited in fully describing him. And we see this again throughout this the scriptures, this language of accommodation. In fact, we saw we read uh, the passage there in Revelation four, and and John, you can tell, struggles to to describe. Just the glory and the magnificence of of the sight that he saw of the heavenly throne room. Well, that's accommodating language that the Lord uses. It's the only way that we can even catch a small glimpse of understanding what is far beyond our finite grasp. But since God is the one working in the authors of the Bible by his Holy Spirit, we know that what is revealed is certainly true and accurate. But again, it's just a small fraction of all that he actually is. Now this leads us to the final incommunicable attribute, which illustrates this point perfectly. See, God is incomprehensible and infinite, but he's not a very complex being. God is simple. Simplicity refers to the aspect of God's character whereby he is not made up of parts and thus cannot be broken down or reduced. And so, for example, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, says that God is without body, parts, or passions. God cannot be reduced or broken down any further. His attributes don't follow some some recipe which, if you add them up, uh, they compromise his essence or being. 
No, God is his God is his attributes. God is good by virtue of his being because he's God, not because of his goodness. Because he is God, he is all virtue in his essence. Simplicity f- flows from his self-existence and his immutability. Because that which is composed of different parts can never be truly self-existent. And just because it is composed of previously existing parts, neither can it be unchangeable because every time you add a new part, it affects a change. An illustration of this would be the Trinity. That the persons of the Trinity are not parts of God that come together and compose God. No, the persons of the Trinity, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They are one God, equal in power and glory, though they are distinct in their persons. And of course, this is where the incomprehensibility of God comes in, because in our finite beings, we can't fully understand even the doctrine of the Trinity, but we see it revealed to us in the Scriptures. So where do we see this simplicity of God in the scriptures? Well, we especially see it in those passages that talk about the unity of God. And so, for example, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. There are Paul's ascribing the same activity to God the Father as he is to Jesus the Son. They are one. And also we see uh, this attribute displayed in those passages which reveal the Trinity. And so, for example, uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three names are three persons, and yet one name. The, the name there, name there is singular, and so very clear that these three persons are the one name, not different parts, but they all have the one name. So, what are the implications of this attribute of simplicity? Well, it assures us that God alone is the one true God. If God was made of parts, well, then we would have to ask, well, who put the parts together? If God were parts, he'd be dependent on the parts and the composer of those parts. There would be no way of knowing who or what is truly God. We can't know who is truly God, but we can't know truth. And, of course, then all religions would be the same. And our hope in Christ would certainly be in vain. Again, we are finite, and God is infinite. And yet, he's a simple being. And there's this seemingly complex mystery of of the Trinity, yet God is one God, and the only God. We can't possibly comprehend beyond what God has revealed to us in his word, and we get into danger when we go beyond what we find in the words, in, in the word of God. And as we mentioned, even the language that, that God has given to us in the scriptures, though certainly true, 
is often inadequate to fully describe the essence of his being. He has to make accommodation to us so that we can at least understand a small piece of it. Well, this should then drive us to worship him all the more because of who he is infinitely greater than we are. That he has condescended or that he has lowered himself so that we might know him, so that we might love him, so that we might glorify him as our creator and as our Lord and as our redeemer. Again, as we think about all these incommunicable attributes, the, it becomes clear that God is the only true God. And again, we wonder, why would he even bother with us then? If he is all self-sufficient, if he is immutable, if he, why does he even bother with us? Well, I don't really know. But certainly we should rejoice and give thanks that he does. That this glorious God that we can't even begin to fully know, but he has revealed himself to us. And he has called us to himself through his Son, that we might serve and glorify his name in all that we do. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth of your word and how you revealed yourself. And it is truly humbling to us when we consider these incommunicable attributes. They truly show that you are unique. You are the one true living God. There is no other. And we're so thankful, Father, because we're mindful that you didn't need us at all. And yet it was your good pleasure to create us, to create this world in which we live, and to even use us as vessels of honor to serve and glorify your name, and even to be faithful witnesses to others, to lead them to you. And so we praise you and thank you, Father, for for revealing us these things to us, even though we can't fully comprehend it all because of our finiteness. Yet we praise you and thank you that you are who you are. We thank you that you do not change. We thank you that you truly are the one God and that we are your people. And so we pray that you would truly bless, uh, impress this truth upon our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.